speaking with Katherine Rowland, who is a writer, researcher, and author of the just-published book, The Pleasure Gap, American Women and the Unpublished Sexual Revolution. To start, let's talk about the title of your book, The Pleasure Gap. Can you explain what The Pleasure Gap is that your book explores? So The Pleasure Gap firstly describes the differences that research has continually surfaced between how men experience pleasure, sexuality, and desire, and how women experience it. And in broad strokes, it appears that women are just deriving far less satisfaction in their sexual lives than men. And we see this showing up not only in the orgasm gap, but the much circulated term essentially describing how women on average have one orgasm for every three that men experience, but it also refers more broadly to women's sense of safety, security, and entitlement in their sexual interactions, and overall just deriving less satisfaction than men. Um, But I think importantly that the pleasure gap also looks at major differences between how women respond physically to arousal and how they respond subjectively or emotionally to sexuality and desire. And what you see in studies and what women report is that when they're exposed to a range of sexual stimuli, they might become physically or genitally aroused, and yet they report being absolutely um, emotionally or psychologically numb to that sensation. So they're not actually deriving any pleasure or any or feeling any sexual excitement of any kind. And I was really, really interested in why that gap exists and what that gap signifies. Um, so that's another piece of the pleasure gap. And lastly, and I think critically, the pleasure gap describes um, the difference between the sensuality and sexuality that we actually experience or that we long to experience, and then the states of excitement um, and arousal that the media continually bombards us with and sort of tells us that we should be experiencing. And women really hold themselves, women, I should say men too, um, really hold themselves hostage to these absurdist ideas of what sex should look like and sound like and feel like. And that leaves little room for what's actually playing out um, on their bodies. So there's a lot of gaps between reality and what it is that people say or are told they're supposed to feel, women in particular, that is. Um, I'm curious why there are these gaps between, for example, what women supposedly physiologically experience and what they recognize as desire or what they would say themselves is desirable? Yes. Um, I think there's no one answer for why that's the case. I think there's there's a host of contributing factors. Um, amongst them are the fact that I think women just out of the gate from childhood onward are encouraged to um, censor and censure their own desires, labeled as risky, as dangerous, as something that's bound to get them in trouble. And yet at the same time, they're so frequently encouraged to engage in a performative sexuality. So I think the lesson from very early on is that 
your sex does not really belong to you. And I think over time, this becomes really deeply internalized to the point where it starts affecting how women are feeling in their bodies. Um, Another arm of research here suggests that women... um, for whatever reason, and I'm, I, I confess I'm not entirely sure why this is, because no one has really determined um, a clear explanation here, but that women tend to um, sort of shut off sensation more frequently than men, um, that men tend to be more in sync with what's taking place within their body, be that um, escalating heart rate or shifts in blood pressure or um, the ravenous roar of hunger in their bellies. Um, And this is a process called interoception. And research suggests that women have lower levels of interoception than men do, which sort of flies in the face of how um, theorists and scholars and medical practitioners have considered women's bodies throughout history. We've always kind of thought of women as mired in blood and swampy feeling and really just being completely and inextricably of their bodies. And yet what we see more and more is that women kind of shut off those feelings and to the point where it's showing up with often even fatal consequences. I mean, women um, are experiencing early signs of heart disease and yet busily scrubbing the dishes or or cleaning up the kitchen. Um, so what's going on that women are silencing the cries of, of their own bodies and not listening to what's taking place? Um, I think part of what that is indicating um, is just how encouraged, particularly in this modern moment, how encouraged women are to sort of be everything and be of service to others and to not put themselves forward, to not feel entitled to being able to put themselves forward to the point where they can't hear what's taking place in their bodies. And what are the forces that are at work in women perhaps numbing their own feelings or not feeling entitled to express or have their own needs? Again, I think I think there's a range of forces. I think part of it is the general social marginalization of women in certain continued arenas where there is a subtle but persistent message that women um, are not as entitled or as equal um, as men are socially. Um, and so I think that leads to a certain quieting. Um, one trend that I observed sort of first with a kind of benign interest and then with mounting alarm was women's propensity to fake it. Um, that is to pretend pleasure where none in fact is, is being experienced. And I wondered, you know, why is this happening? Why is this continuing to happen in this day and age where we really vaunt and value female pleasure and sort of we see female orgasm more visibly than we've ever seen it before. And yet women are entering at times, entering intimate interactions and are acting in a way that's completely out of sync with what they're 
they're actually feeling. Um, and I think that part of it is that, ironically, as female pleasure has become more visible and more expected, women have um, carried with them the message that they need to enact these sensations so as to appear healthy, liberal, game, feminine, what have you, um, when indeed that's not what they're actually experiencing. Um, and I saw this to the point where women would sometimes report being in a state of physical pain, um, of being in a situation in which they felt um, potentially harmed or imperiled, and yet still, rather than say, get your hands off me and stop, um, they were they were pretending pleasure so as to usher this um, interaction along. And for me, that was so striking and that um, it just so clearly indicates um, this idea that, that women are still not included in how we're, how we're viewing pleasure and how we're viewing successful and complete sexuality in certain circumstances. You know, you raise a really thorny question here, which is that if women have suppressed their own needs and desires, or if they have been trained to please others first or primarily, then how can they consent? I think that is the thorny question, Um, because especially as we are revisiting um, and, that's, and a, on a very needed and big way, this this question of consent and its fundamental importance. Um, I, as, as I was thinking about this very issue in in reporting for and writing the book, I was so struck by the complete erasure of the question of female desire in all discussions around consent. The way that consent tends to be framed is very anachronistic. It's a bargain between um, a power holder and someone with lesser power. Um, And so how, if women aren't tuned in to what they do in fact desire, um, can they actually consent? Um, I think uh, for a more optimistic spin, that the fact that desire can be learned, that women are absolutely endowed with the ability to tap into what feels good and to follow sensation as it moves throughout their lives and changes over time and moves throughout their body, um, that as they become more intimately acquainted with the qualities of their desire and their pleasure, that they're able, that they're then able to consent. Um, But I think this sort of changing nature of consent also underscores the necessity of the changing nature of desire, rather, underscores the necessity of thinking about consent as something that we have to continually revisit across the lifespan. Um, Too often we frame consent as merely an exchange that's happening amongst young people or single people. And for some women that I spoke to, particularly women who were uh, partnered and uh, more mature, part of their process of 
sexual rediscovery and erotic empowerment was actually drawing boundaries with their long-term partner and reintroducing consent as a as an erotic tool in their intimate relationships. Your study focuses primarily on heterosexual women. Why? Um, that's a that's a fantastic question. Um, in part, the focus ended up landing as closely on heterosexual women as it did, because as I spoke with queer women and waded through what there is of the literature on women who have sex with women or primarily have sex with women, it seemed that queer women were not beset with the same volume of distress around desire and pleasure and orgasm and self-knowledge. And I think that part of that has to do with the fact that women who have sex with women tend to have more intimate bodily knowledge um, in sort of mechanical terms, sexual interactions tend to take place for far longer than the three to 13 minutes of um, penetrative intercourse that often characterizes heterosexual exchange. Um, But moreover, um, what it seemed to me that women who have sex with women who identify as queer have done some fundamental work around the nature of their own desire. Whereas for heterosexual women, it often is sort of a choiceless choice, um, something that they weren't thinking about that just started defining their interactions. Um, and then think in that population amongst heterosexual women, there's this, this, very narrow idea that sex culminates in penetrative activity, even though that so rarely um, on its own produces satisfaction for women. So in a way, queer women were left out of some of the broader arcs of the book because it struck me that they're fearing far better on this front than um, the majority of straight women. How did you go about doing this research? It seems to me that given some of the pressures that you talked about for women to want sex, to like sex, to consider all of their sex good, um, how is it that you got women to actually talk about Um, what their experience was or to examine whether or not what they felt was what they thought they should feel. Mm -hmm. You know, I found that even for all the, the pressure and the many masks that are piled on top of female sexuality, that there is still a tremendous appetite to speak about this. Um, And I think that that appetite is reflected in sort of the booming market for sexual services that we see right now. Um, But I found that oftentimes I had to do little more than mention to someone down the block that I was working on this project than for my inbox to start filling up with people saying, I really want to talk about this because what's not ever being discussed is how these things actually make me feel. Um, which is not to say that there weren't 
ample conversations where women said, I'm not going to go any further than this. Um, and they, they weren't as, um, as deep in terms of exchange, but overwhelmingly, um, I found that women were, were eager and hungry and really ready to talk about this and sort of peel away the, the layers of, um, myth and pathology and shame and misunderstanding that tends to shroud this subject. What was it that women were eager to talk about that they hadn't been able to talk about? A couple of things there. I think um, one was uh, devastatingly, though um, realistically not not that surprising, was was trauma. Um, I found that so often I, I didn't set out to explicitly talk about instances of of sexual violence or abuse, but that subject just persistently came up. Um, it wasn't universal, but it was um, so, so common. And um, I was so just to away. clarify, so you're saying that women are experiencing a lot more sexual trauma than um, is being talked about. Or I that it hasn't yes, been even I think we're in the midst of a conversation around the extent and depth of sexual trauma. And I feel like that still doesn't entirely capture the scope of what's taking place in women's lives, um, both directly and, and indirectly. Um, just women's continual exposure to um, the threat of trauma and abuse, I think, in and of itself is traumatizing. But in terms of, of direct abuse, um, an overwhelming number of the women I had talked to um, referred to horrific or just deeply unwanted past experiences. Um, so I think that is something that women very actively want to discuss. Um, another piece is the sheer boredom that a lot of women experience and their coping mechanisms for managing that boredom in the context of also feeling like they need to, and I'm, I'm speaking of when I reference boredom, I'm talking more about women who are in long-term monogamous partnerships, um, wherein there's this, um, I think, larger than ever pressure to foster romance and excitement through the years, if not the decades, and sort of balancing that very beautiful hope and expectation with what's often a plotting physical reality is, is, is stressful. Um, and women really wanted to talk about that. Um, but I also found that women were eager to sort of move past the discussion of kind of what you did and how you did a, a description of of moves and maneuvers, if you will, and talk about what they were actually feeling, which is so often left out of common discussions. I think we're more comfortable than ever with referencing anatomy and kind of the crude mechanics of physical acts, but actually talking about what sensation that produces is like taboo and totally hush. Um, so women wanted to, to discuss that as well.
You know, it's interesting. There's this longstanding sexist stereotype that women are less sexual than men and less interested in sex. And on the other hand, a lot of women today, especially young women, are expected to crave and openly pursue sex. What is the reality here between these two poles? Um, It's such an interesting moment of tension that we're seeing right now. I mean, I think the reality, as reality often is, is is neither. Um, I think in terms of this idea that women are inherently less sexual, less libidinous, less interested in sex, um, we can chalk that up to a, a laden historic construct that's changed a lot through time depending on the, the social era in which we find ourselves. Um, I think fascinatingly, if we look into deep history, there was a huge investment in women as being sexual, um, deeply sexual creatures. Women were sort of thought of as the inversion of men and the successful um, continuance of the species rested on women's ability to orgasm like men to sort of release their seed in orgasmic ejaculate. Um, and we've certainly done away with those, <laughs> with those ideas over time. But I think we've, we've been variously invested in different ideas around the strength of female sexuality over time. And I think just as that idea of the passionless, um, frigid, sexually disinterested woman is a product of history, I think the idea of the hyper-libidinous, I don't care who I do it with, I just love sex, um, idea that is trafficking in contemporary media is, is equally a construct. And I think the truth is you know, on one obvious level is that we're not going to ever talk about a singular nature of of female sexuality or certainly of human sexuality. It really varies from person to person and place to place. Um, But that sexuality, as much as anything else, is a sort of negotiation of of life and society around us Um, and is going to be contoured by what feels safe as much as what feels exciting and acceptable. You know, a lot of people talk or are talking right now about the gender pay gap, the fact that women are paid less than men on the whole, and even for jobs where they're doing the same work. I'm wondering, is there a connection that you see between the pay gap at work and the orgasm gap in private life? That's a great question. And I think they are related in the sense that the, maybe not directly the orgasm gap, but the pleasure gap, as I understand it, I really think of it as like the canary in the coal mine signaling that the world is still not as equal or fair as we purport it to be. Um, and insofar as our social experiences affect how we feel physically and 
mentally in the world, I think the pay gap as being this continued assault to women's dignity, worth, and the quality of their labor um, certainly informs a, a drag-down experience of what they are entitled to feel in terms of, of pleasure. Um, but I think, I guess thinking beyond that, um, you could also see that pay gap as informing a broader sense of not just women's internalized sensation, but sort of a, the larger social remark on what women are worth and the, and the apparent consensus in, in capital markets that, that women are worth less than men and they deserve less. Um, and so you could certainly see that as being um, resonant in the realm of pleasure as in the realm of, um, of take-home pay. Mm-hmm. What do you think needs to change in our society in order for women's pleasure to actually be important to women and to men? I think we need to see broad changes in um, sort of public safety to move from a climate of generalized threat and risk to one of um, collective healing around um, our bodies and sort of the, the tragedies that have befallen men and women's bodies and that have been so normalized in, in current life. I think that is hugely a, a part of it to um, create conditions in which sexuality is in terms of physical experience and actual desire is not contoured by a sense of risk. Um, and crucially, I think we have to change education. Um, so much education completely um, avoids or stigmatizes the very concept of pleasure, but to introduce pleasure as a facet of health and indeed public health, I think is a very necessary part of, of how we change all of this going forward. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I have been talking today to Catherine Rowland, who is the author of The Pleasure Gap, American Women and the Unfinished Sexual Revolution. I am Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Femmes.